0: morning welcome once again to north suburban church happy father's day happy juneteenth much to celebrate this weekend and it looks like god has blessed us with some incredible weather for it one note before we begin this morning <clears throat> some of us have battled homesickness before maybe some are now maybe we went off to college or when our family moved from one place to another but you know, we talk sometimes here at North Sub about a version of homesickness that we never actually want to move on from as Christians. Namely, this sense of alienation that we feel on earth, knowing that our true home, our, our home with a capital H, isn't here. Scripture refers to us as exiles here, and we use that term here at North Sub a lot. Like, like sure, we, we do participate in. Chicago land life like our neighbors do, but at the same time it never feels quite as comfortable as home does, and it shouldn't. Right? So, so part of the work that we're always doing every Sunday morning here at North Sub as well as midweek in our growth groups and life groups is just simply reminding each other of home right? and thereby making sure we don't let each other get too comfortable here too comfortable in a nation where we're ultimately not meant to be anything more than foreigners and resident aliens. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight, for Jesus' sake. Amen. There's always somewhere it starts. For one person, it started with lingering a couple seconds too long on an image that popped up while scrolling social media. It started for another person with the decision to use the business account for that one minor personal purchase. It started for another person with the decision to hang around the office a few minutes after work was done in hopes of talking to that coworker who provided that spark. your spouse just doesn't provide anymore we're not talking about diving headlong into heinous sin we're just talking about how bad could it really be to just dip a couple toes in the water in our scripture text today we're going to see what happened when God's people dipped their toes in the water so to speak would you turn with me to Judges chapter 1 if you haven't already Judges chapter 1, you've got Bibles in the chairbacks in front of you, you want to turn and follow along. Uh, today we kick off a new sermon series. If you had not had a chance to watch the intro videos that we've been sending out, you can pull those up in our emails or on our YouTube channel. What we've been saying as we've previewed this series the last few weeks is that it's hard to imagine a better biblical parallel to illustrate our present cultural moment than the time of the Judges. In Israel, chronologically, here's where it falls on the biblical timeline. Uh, would you advance that slide there? I left the remote. Um, Preg, need to advance all those for me. Thanks. Uh, so here's where it falls on the on the biblical timeline. We're after humanity has fallen, and then God has chosen this one man, Abraham, and his family to be the family through whom God is going to save all of humanity. It's after Moses has brought God's people up. ...out of slavery in Egypt and after Joshua has brought them into the land God has promised them. But if you can see it's right there before God raises up kings. Uh, and Israel comes under their rule and as they'll really establish the nation in their land. So, so the book immediately before Judges is Joshua. In Joshua God's people start to take possession of the land God has given them. They're obeying God, they're having success and so at the time Joshua dies... Yes, there's still a lot of the promised land yet to be claimed, but so far so good. When the book of Joshua ends, what the reader expects to read next is maybe an account of how Israel finished the job, right? Fully possessing the land that God promised, laying claim to all his promised blessings, and Canaan then becoming Israel. Instead, what's going to happen in the book of Judges is that Israel is going to let itself slowly be canonized. God's people are going to fail to take possession of the land. And in their disobedience, they become morally and religiously like the nations around them. So much so that by the time we're reading the horrifying stories in the last couple chapters of this book, we're simultaneously sick to our stomachs and filled with rage. That's not where the story starts, right? When God's people become like the nations around them, they don't immediately launch themselves. Thank you. They don't immediately launch themselves into uh, brutal gang rape and retaliatory murder. That's all at the end of the book. What we find in chapter 1 is just, just that dipping of a toe into that dangerous water. And that gives reason for us to pause And reflect this morning because let's be honest which of us hasn't at least dipped a toe in that same water this week the key to understanding the structure of this passage is this repeated word often translated go up uh hebrew word that's translated go up i'll show you how it's all over this passage but what god has called his people to do at this point is to go up take possession of the land. So, the author structures the passage like this. First, the people ask who will go up, and then Judah goes up, and then Joseph goes up, and then finally, the angel of the Lord goes up. So, who will go up? Judah goes up, Joseph goes up, and the angel goes up. Each has significance for us. So, first, the question who will go up? Let's take a look. Judges chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites inquired of the Lord. Who will be the first to go up for us, literally, in Hebrew? Who will be the first to fight for us against the Canaanites? Okay, so this going up is a going up to fight. It's war, which immediately raises the all-important question. Is this war that God has called them to a morally justified war? Is it like Russia's present-day invasion of Ukraine, which the world has pretty much agreed is morally reprehensible? Or is it more like D-Day, which the world has pretty much agreed was morally justified? Which is it? There are a lot of factors in that calculus. Uh, I have a lot to say on this, but problem is we don't have a lot of time. So here's my request. I would love nothing more than if somebody would text in a question or two about the conquest of Canaan so that I can share some more thoughts on this. The number to text to is 224-300-0240. At the end of this sermon, I'll respond to questions that you have texted in, but I don't want to spend time answering questions that nobody's asking. So your texting questions will help me spend time on what actually needs to be addressed. So thanks for, thanks for doing that at any point during this sermon. The fact is, Reading about Israel's conquest of Canaan is quite uncomfortable for most of us, especially when we remember that the command from God is complete annihilation. Take a look at it in Deuteronomy 7 and Deuteronomy 20. Here's what they were commanded. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to possess, and he drives out many nations before you, and the Lord your God delivers them over to you and you defeat them, you must completely destroy them. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. And then it's elaborated on in chapter 20. You must not let any living thing survive among the cities of these people. The Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. You must completely destroy them. Hathite, Amorite, Canaanite, Perizzite, Hivite, and Jebusite. As the Lord your God has commanded you. Scriptures like these have made some Christians over the centuries so uncomfortable. That they've gone to great lengths. Heretical lengths even to find a way around this for example saying that the mean Old Testament God is different from the gracious New Testament God but what we find is there isn't an easy way around it biblically on one level it's it's supposed to be uncomfortable it's it's awful the question is what kind of awful namely is it awful type a we might call it which is it's so tragic that these people have become so sinful that the morally just outcome for them was to suffer complete annihilation? Or is it awful type B, namely, the sort of God who could command this is inherently immoral. It's awful in that sense. See what I'm asking? Here's my thesis on the conquest of Canaan. Ready? So this is just what was... Uh, 15 minutes in in writing that I try to condense into one sentence. Uh, I'm asking you to give me a chance to elaborate on this response and your questions after the sermon. Here's what I'm going to say. If we understood how categorically different God is from us, and if we therefore understood how heinous the Canaanites' sins were, we would still be grieved by this command to destroy the Canaanites completely, just as God himself takes no delight in this. Right? Yet, we wouldn't morally object. That's my thesis. If we understood how categorically different God is from us, and if we therefore understood how heinous the Canaanite sins were, we would still be grieved by this command to destroy the Canaanites completely, yet we wouldn't morally object. I spend a whole sermon elaborating on each of these. That's my nutshell analysis of God's command to claim the promised land and show the Canaanites no mercy. So here we are. God's people are now in the promised land, poised to completely fulfill their calling. And Judah goes up, verses 2 through 21. I'm going to read verses 2 and 3 if you follow along here. The Lord answered, Judah is to go. So who should go up for us? Judah is to go up, literally go up. I have handed the land over to him. Judah said to his brother Simeon, come up with me to my allotted territory and let's fight against the Canaanites. I will also go with you to your allotted territory. So Simeon went with him. It makes sense that God would select Judah to go first. Before Judah's father Jacob died, you might remember he gathered together all 12 of his sons and told them their destinies. And what was Judah's destiny? Genesis 49, it was that the scepter of rulership would be an enduring feature of his family line until one day a great ruler would come along from Judah to rule all the peoples. So throughout the wilderness wanderings, the family of Judah is always the first to go. In the promised land, they're the first to receive their allotment, and God sends them up first here. Now, what do we make of Judah inviting Simeon to join? Commentators are divided. Maybe it's a sinful lack of trust in God. On the other hand, maybe God gave the command, assuming Judah would involve Simeon, since Simeon's only this little tribe whose territory is completely enclosed by Judah's on the map. In any case, Judah and Simeon go together. And they go up to fight in what we might call the uplands in verses 4 to 8, because they're going up to high ground. And there in the uplands, they largely find success, at least in a military sense. Uh, This won't be up on the screen. Follow along in your Bible, Judges 1, 4 through 8. When Judah attacked, the Lord handed the Canaanites and Perizzites over to them. They struck down 10,000 men in Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek, which means Lord of Bezek, in Bezek, fought against him and struck down the Canaanites and Perizzites. When Adonai Bezek fled, they pursued him, caught him, and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Adonai Bezek said, well, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. God has repaid me for what I have done. They brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. The men of Judah fought against Jerusalem, captured it, put it to the sword, and set the city on fire. So victory in the uplands. God's doing what he promised to do. He's handing over their enemies to them, including in Jerusalem. But see, that the big picture summary of victory in these verses is accented by this detailed account of how they dealt with this one king. Adonai Bezek. It's pretty gruesome how they treat him. Cutting off his thumbs and big toes. Interestingly, he thinks it's deserved. So, all's well that ends well, right? Well, no. What should have happened to Adonai Bezek? He should have been killed, right? Yeah. God was very clear, remember? No survivors. Right? So it seems that the author. Pauses here in these verses to take us into such an unusual level of detail on the story of one man, Adonai Bezek, because this is the first time we see Israel adopting the Canaanite way of doing things. Cutting off fingers and toes, that's the Canaanite way, not the Lord's way. But Israel is effectively dipping its toes in the water of the Canaanite way. Still, for the moment, God's gracious and gives them victory. So in verse 9, Judah and Simeon, along with Benjamin, turn their attention to what we might call the lowlands. As marked by the phrasing you can see in verse 9, they marched down. Here in the lowlands, we get our first account of military failure. I'm going to read verses 9 through 19 if you follow along. Afterward, the men of Judah marched down to fight against the Canaanites who were living in the hill country, the Negev and the Judean foothills. Judah also marched against the Canaanites who were living in Hebron. Hebron was formerly named Kiriath Arba. They struck down Sheshai, Ahaman, and Talmai. Those are descendants of the Anakite giants. From there, they marched against the residents of Debir. Debir was formerly named Kiriath Sefer. Caleb said, whoever attacks and captures Kiriath Sefer, I will give my daughter Aksa to him as a wife. So Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And Caleb gave his daughter Axa to him as his wife. When she arrived, she persuaded Othniel to ask her father for a field. As she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, what do you want? She answered him, give me a blessing. Since you have given me land in the Negev, give me springs also. So Caleb gave her both the upper and lower springs. The descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, had gone up with the men of Judah from the city of Palms to the wilderness of Judah, which was in the Negev of Arad. They went to live among the people. Judah went with his brother Simeon, struck the Canaanites who were living in Zeph- Zepheth, and completely destroyed the town, so they named the town Hormah. Judah captured Gaza in its territory, Ashkelon in its territory, and Ekron in its territory. The Lord was with Judah and enabled them to take possession of the hill country. But they could not drive out the people who were living in the valley, because those people had iron chariots. Much of what I just read has already been told in the book of Joshua, actually. It's pretty clear that the author of Judges had some form of the book of Joshua in front of him when he wrote. So we have to ask, why does the author of Judges lift these particular stories from Joshua? When we read on, we'll find that one thing the author is doing here in chapter 1 is setting some things up to help us understand what's going to take place later in the book. So, first... As the book's going to raise a lot of questions about God's relationship with ethnic foreigners, the author chooses to highlight almost exclusively ethnic foreigners here to be heroes in this section. Check it out. He reminds us in verse 13 uh, of something we know from earlier scripture, that Caleb and now his relative Othniel, they're actually Kenizzites. They're descended from Esau according to Genesis 36. So while their genealogies, Caleb's and Othniel's, can't actually be traced back to Judah, their family converted to faith in the God of Israel and showed such loyalty to Israel's God that Caleb, a foreigner, eventually becomes the appointed leader of this esteemed tribe of Judah in the book of Numbers. And we'll see in a chapter or two that Othniel is going to become Israel's first judge. But it wouldn't have been missed on the original readers that these are actually ethnic outsiders leading the way. Same goes for the descendants of the Kenite in verse 16. These are the descendants of Moses' foreign in-laws. And Moses promised them back in Numbers 10 that if they accompanied Israel to the promised land and worshipped Israel's God, they'd partake in all of Israel's blessings despite not ethnically belonging to Israel. And here in Judges 1, that that promise comes true. See what the author's doing? The few bright spots here in the early going in judges are actually people who are not ethnic Israelites which by the way is another argument against this mission being some sort of ethnic cleansing or genocide God always shows grace to those individuals who will from any nation who will come to him and accept him as God besides highlighting foreigners the author is also teeing up here the theme of relationships between men and women which will factor in Israel's degradation throughout the book. Here at this point, early on, a woman named Aksa, she admirably and boldly asks for the blessing of well-watered land, and she gets it for her family. Later in the book, other women like Delilah will use their assertiveness for evil, unlike Aksa. And on the flip side, they'll find themselves living among men who do not treat them with respect the way Caleb does here. It's going to devolve, in other words, in all The lowland campaign, we might call it, in verses 9 through 19 of Judges 1, involves lots of success for this family. But did you catch verse 19? This is not a successful campaign in the valleys or the lowlands. The way it had been, they had been successful in the hills. Right? Uh, The Lord is with Judah, enabled them to take possession of the hill country, but they couldn't drive out the people who were living in the valley because those people had iron chariots. And the person who's been reading along in the Old Testament to this point is like, wait, what? Iron chariots are too strong for God? God had promised them, Deuteronomy 7, they'd be able to win no matter what the technology the enemy had. Joshua had reiterated that promise in Joshua 17. He even specifically named iron chariots in that chapter as something that would be no match for God's people if God was with them. The beginning of verse 19 says the Lord is with them, and that enabled them to have victory in the hills. So does the Lord's ability to save come with some sort of asterisk? Like, unless iron chariots are involved, then all bets are off. Now, what happens here is that Israel uses the enemy's iron chariots as an excuse to say, well, we can't do it. We can't go up and take that land. And maybe I'll just comment quickly. When I read this, I hear shades of the excuses some of us Christians make for why we can't be open about our faith in the North Shore. I can't do it. This isn't like the Bible Belt. This, is, this area is too hostile to Christianity. My neighbors are too Jewish. Or my coworkers are too set in their ways. Right? If, if I shared my faith, I'd just get eaten alive. I can't do it. Like the Israelites, saying, Sure, God was able to help us in less difficult situations, but what can our God do in the lowlands? Right down here, they've got iron chariots, they'll run us over. Look at how this section wraps up in verses 20 to 21. Judah gave Hebron to Caleb, just as Moses had promised, and Caleb drove out the three sons of Anak who lived there. At the same time, the Benjamites did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. The Jebusites have lived among the Benjamites in Jerusalem to this day. More failure here, as Jerusalem, which was taken by Judah back in verse 8, has apparently fallen back into enemy hands, and so the people of Judah, Benjamin, Simeon, are prevented from enjoying all of God's blessings. Why? Not because they're not strong enough, because they don't believe their God is strong enough. So we've seen the fortunes of Judah, uh, Judah, Simeon, Benjamin. Now what about the rest of the tribes? That's what we see in verses 22 to 36. Joseph goes up. As they begin, the Lord is with them. That's good news. Look at it in verse 22. The house of Joseph also attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with them. This is literally also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. But then, oh no despite the Lord's presence with them. They feel like they have to take matters into their own hands. Verses 23 to 26, take a look with me. They sent spies to Bethel. The town was formerly named Luz. The spies saw a man coming out of the town and said to him, please show us how to get into town and we'll show you kindness. When he showed them the way into the town, they put the town to the sword but released the man and his entire family then the man went to the land of the Hittites built a town and named it Luz as still its name today this is tragic why is it tragic we might ask isn't this what the Israelites did with Rahab back in Joshua 2 and they asked for her help and and, in exchange saved her life God thought that was a good thing back then right what's different well These Israelites in Judges 1 probably are trying to duplicate that Joshua 2 story, just like we sometimes try to recreate something God did in our past. The problem is that Rahab and this dude from Luz are very different people. For one thing, the spies in Joshua 2 only promised Rahab safety because she voluntarily pledged her loyalty to the God of Israel and acknowledged him as the one true God. Then they said, okay, well, if, if we conquer this land, then we're going to keep you safe. This guy, on the other hand, indicates no allegiance whatsoever to Israel's God. And for another thing, God has explicitly commanded his people at this point not to make any covenant with any of the people of the land, right? Deuteronomy 7, make no treaty with them. Yet here they are in verse 24. It says, we will show you hesed in Hebrew. That's covenant loyalty, covenant kindness. So in the end, do they take the city of Luz? Yes, right? But when you look closer, you realize, oh no, they didn't actually conquer the city. They just allowed it to move. Look at it. Before the Israelites show up, the town's called Luz, verse 23. At the end of the story in verse 26, sure, that particular town has been defeated and renamed Bethel. But the dude they released just goes down the road and rebuilds the town and names it Luz all over again. Luz has just shifted its location on the map. Look how the report continues. Verse 27, at that time Manasseh failed to take possession of Bashan and Tanakh and their surrounding villages, or the residents of Dor, Ibleam, and Megiddo and their surrounding villages. The Canaanites were determined to stay in this land. Manasseh can't conquer the people because they're determined. Then in verse 28, when Israel became stronger, they made the Canaanites serve as forced labor, but never drove them out verses 29 and 30 are more of the same at that time Ephraim failed to drive out the Canaanites who were living in Gezer so the Canaanites have lived among them in Gezer, Zebulun failed to drive out the residents of Kitron or the residents of Nahalal, so the Canaanites lived among them and served as forced labor the Canaanites are not being driven out anymore, they're keeping their homes and their gods and their institutions and they're living among the people of Israel then in verse 31 the story takes a tragic turn Look at how it's worded. Asher failed to drive out the residents of Akko or of Sidon or Alab or Akseb, Helba, Afek, or Rehob. The Asherites lived among the Canaanites who were living in the land because they failed to drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the residents of Beth Shemesh or the residents of Beth Anath. They lived among the Canaanites who were living in the land, but the residents of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath served as their forced labor did you catch the language shift there now instead of the land being spoken of as israel's with some stubborn canaanites continuing to live among them which is bad enough the land's being spoken of as though the canaanites are the default residents who are allowing the israelites to live among them Beth shemes means house of the sun god Anath means house of the love goddess these cities are still named after foreign gods Then verse 34 is maybe the worst in this chapter. The Amorites forced the Danites, Dan is a tribe in Israel, into the hill country and did not allow them to go down into the valley. The Amorites were determined to stay in Har Haris, and Shalbim. When the house of Joseph got the upper hand, the Amorites were made to serve as forced labor. The territory of the Amorites extended from the scorpion's ascent, that is from Selah upward. In the end, the only boundaries worth mentioning aren't those of israel they're the boundaries of the amorites that they determined for themselves and these amorites are forcing or oppressing the danites into the hill country in verse 34 it happens to be the same word used in exodus 3 for the oppression under the egyptians back when israel was in slavery in the end here the northern two-thirds of the promised land is still not taken at the end of judges chapter 1 All these problems started with their dipping their toes in the water of Canaanite, the Canaanite way of life, instead of cleansing the land from the Canaanite way of life. So let me ask, do you know what you're playing with while you dip your toes in that water? It might just be joining in laughter at unwholesome jokes. It might just be a little step over the physical boundaries you set with your girlfriend or boyfriend. It might just be using your position to get a little perk for your family member. The most normal things in the world. Look around. I'm not doing anything everybody else isn't doing. That's just the thing. When we start thinking it's normal to live like Canaanites, that might mean... The Canaan has succeeded in working its way into our hearts. Everybody is susceptible to Canaanization. In different ways, of course. I'll confess what it's looked like for me, right? So so, so I was raised in the church. I grew up uh, hearing Christians pointing their fingers at all the sin out there in the world. That's where the problems are, outside these doors. Then I grow up and realize as many do as we grow up, that those pointing the fingers had tons of sin themselves. They were jerks, the people who disagreed with them. These Christians were unwilling to examine their racism. They chose power over principle. They protected abusers. Right? Wait, the church people themselves, they were canonized, I realized. The real problem is actually over there in the church. So at this point in my journey, I end up becoming much more aware of and concerned about this sin over here, the sin in the church, than I am about the sin in the world outside. And while I still do think that the Bible calls us to be more concerned by the sin in here in the church than by the sin out there, I've realized in just the last year or two how important it is that we guard diligently against both. Because I've been noticing some ways in which Canaan has been seeping into my heart and my home through the back door. These last few years while well, I've been focused over here on sin within the church and fighting that. I, I was dipping my toes in that water. And telling myself that it was fine. I didn't even re- recognize what I was doing. Because I was only worried about staying out of this water over here. Does that make sense? That's just my journey. Yours has probably looked different. But we're all susceptible to canonization some sort and look how quick it happens Judges chapter 1 right? it happens like this it starts with a reinterpreting of God's command into something that maybe makes more sense to me okay instead of killing this king let's cut off his thumbs and big toes and then it's well God told us to invade but they've got iron chariots and eventually that one choice to do what's right in our own eyes multiplies into hundreds of of choices, such that it's a lifestyle. And the way of Canaan has become our way of life. So what does God say about all this? That's how the passage wraps up. The angel of the Lord goes up in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Uh, I'll read that now. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land that I had promised to your father's. I also said, I will never break my covenant with you. You are not to make a covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You are to tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore, I now say, I will not drive out these people before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a trap for you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these words to all the Israelites, the people wept loudly. So they named that place Bochim. And offered sacrifices there to the Lord. Okay, who's the angel of the Lord? He shows up lots of times in Scripture. The word angel just means messenger, so this could theoretically be a human messenger, a prophet speaking a message from God. But sometimes in Scripture, the angel of the Lord uh, certainly does seem to appear as some sort of glorious being, and sometimes he's so closely identified with God that it makes you ask wait, is this God himself? Whoever this messenger is in this case, when he speaks, it's as though God himself were speaking because he's speaking a message directly from God. And here's God's assessment in these verses. I'm going to paraphrase what we just read. God says, you've disobeyed both in what you've done and in what you failed to do. I wanted this land cleared out because making covenants with these people and allowing their institutions to continue will result in you making covenants with their gods. But because you've allowed it all to carry on, now it's going to corrupt you. We can imagine, right, what these people might have wanted to say in response. But God, we can't defeat them. They have iron chariots. They're so determined. What does God think about that argument? Well, he tells us preemptively in verse 2. You have not obeyed me, he says. You have not obeyed me. In other words, your problem isn't that you can't, it's that you won't. Your problem isn't that you can't, it's that you won't. Friend, where in your life are you saying, I can't? And God is saying, no, 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 it's that you won't. And this isn't, I'm not talking about the goal that you had as a a kid to play in the NBA one day. That dream's over. I'm asking us to think about what God has commanded us to do. Right? What has God commanded that we're not doing? Because deep down, we're not believing what he's promised. Where are we saying, "I can't, God?" Well, God's saying, "No, no, no, it's that you won't." Tim Keller names a few areas of life in which we tend to do this. I say, "I can't forgive this." I can't. But really, it's that I won't. I say, I can't tell that person the truth but really I just won't tell him the truth because I'm scared that I'll lose the friendship I say well I can't resist this sin I can't friends God is telling someone here this morning your can't is actually a won't now I know where somebody goes with that and you're already going there in your mind and heart is to this place, okay, let me grit my teeth and do it. I'm going to obey this week. Right? But please notice, the angel doesn't come in and lead with, Israel, do better. What does he lead with? Check it out. What's the first thing he says? I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land I had promised to your fathers. I also said I will never break my covenant with you. It's grace. He reminds them that it all started with grace. And I love how the angel makes a point to come up from Gilgal of all places. Do you notice that? That's the place of grace where God wiped away their approach, their reproach upon entry into the land. He didn't have to come up from Gilgal, but that's what he does to remind the people in these verses that the obedience that he's commanding in going up to fight was never something they were supposed to do in order to earn his blessing. No, it was always meant to be the response to the blessing that God had already showered on them. And it's the same for us, right? But there are consequences of their disobedience. Uh, verse 3, I will not drive out these people before you. they will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a trap for you. Thorns, traps. If we're tempted to think that God here is just getting pouty in a moment of vindictive moodiness, remember, he's not doing anything more here in these verses than being true to his past promises. He said it on multiple occasions exodus 23 he said it exodus 34 he said joshua 23 he said he said if you let them remain in the land they're going to make you sin against me if you won't eliminate them i'll stop driving them out and there'll be a snare and a trap for you god has repeatedly and promise and and, uh, and clearly promised that he'll do just this and now he confirms that he meant those promises and as is so often the case with god's discipline It takes the form of him just giving us over to what we desire. You think the lifestyle of Canaan will bring freedom? Okay, I'll let you pursue that. But God knows, what some of us have found out firsthand, namely, that what we think will bring freedom actually entangles us. Doesn't it? As Beth said earlier, we're living in a world that's preaching to us the good news that we are our own that we belong to ourselves, that we'll be most free when we pursue what's right in our own eyes. In a very real sense, we're living in Canaan right now. The problem is that after the hookup, we feel violated. After the high, we feel lower than ever. After the thrill wears off, we're enslaved to the rush and we need to go get more gods of this world promise freedom but they only bring thorns and snares. So the people of Israel weep. Verse 4. They wept loudly. Why do they weep? It's unclear at this point. We've all probably experienced both sorts of weeping along the way. Weeping because of genuine remorse for our sin and weeping because we got caught and we don't like the consequences we don't know which one it is for Israel at this point but the tears indicate there's still something there they haven't fully abandoned the Lord just yet at this point anyway there's still a chance they can still turn to him and friend if you can still weep over your sin this morning there's still a chance for you too Big idea today is this. Because God considers partial obedience to be disobedience, let's wholeheartedly carry out all he has called us to. Let's not even dip our toes in the water of Canaan's way of life. Let's wholeheartedly carry out all he has called us to. I want to close with this reflection, and I'm indebted to Tim Keller for the framing of it. He points out there's a tension. Between chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 3. Go back to it here. Verse 1, he says, I brought you out of Egypt, led you into the land, I promised your fathers. I said, I'll never break my covenant with you. It's one promise of God's, right? But then, I will not drive out these people before you. Because of your covenant breaking. Because of your sin, right? There's a tension there. From God's perspective, he's made two Apparently contradictory promises. One, I've sworn to give you this whole land. And two, I've sworn not to give this land to a disobedient people. Or we could say it like this I've sworn to bless you as my beloved people. And I've sworn not to bless you as a disobedient people. Has God put himself in a bind? How can he possibly solve this dilemma? That tension is actually going to continue throughout this book. In fact, it's only going to get more and more acute. Israel will become more and more Canaanized. They will increasingly live as though they are their own rather than belonging to God until it will be summarized repeatedly at the end of the book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what seemed right to him. So when the book ends, the attentive reader should be bothered that this tension still hasn't been resolved. God can't keep his promise to bless his people and keep his promise not to bless the disobedient. Or can he? While the first readers of Judges couldn't see how that tension could possibly be resolved, we've seen it resolved at the cross. He had always promised to punish the disobedient. At the cross he does by pouring out that wrath for all those years of disobedience, past, present, and future. But instead of carrying out that wrath on us as we deserve, he carries it out on the sinless, perfect Son of God, Jesus Christ. And by standing in our place, Jesus enables God to make good on the other promise, the one to bless his people. Now that we're forgiven and found in Christ, God can bless us. In fact, he delights to shower his blessing on us and as a result of that abundance of spiritual blessing that we find at the cross. We here, North Suburban Church, we can be outposts of something different. Our homes can be homes where we refuse to even dip our toes in that water of Canaan, where we reject even that first incremental step into sin. And in doing so, we can experience the fullness of blessing found in living under the rain of king jesus and as our neighbors come into our homes and lives this summer what impact will it make to them to see it firsthand all right i'm going to respond to questions now that have come in 224 240 i see that a few have come in i'll respond to a couple of these and then we'll pray uh here's one can we think of the command to annihilate canaan similarly to how we think of jesus's mission fulfilled on the cross to annihilate all that opposes god's will it's a good word and i think we absolutely can and should uh god knew how this was going to work out he knew that they would not carry out the command to annihilate these people and uh these worship practices in rebellion against him. And so that sin would not be dealt with ultimately until Jesus dealt with it on the cross. No better way to say it. Uh, Second one, place today's big idea back up on the big screens. I think we can do that. Yes, right there. Bingo. Uh, Third, what would God say if Israel argued that its actions in Canaan were evidence of israel's mercy for the canaanites what would god say if israel argued that its actions in canaan were evidence of israel's mercy for the canaanites there's a lot of evidence here of god's mercy to his own people israel because they deserve to be treated much differently than how god treats them yet he shows them grace and mercy And there are those glimpses that we see of grace and mercy to the Canaanites as well, particularly those Canaanites who say, hey, your God is the true God. Let me align myself with you. There isn't a single example of somebody who says that and yet gets slaughtered, right? Each one of those people is engrafted in And so many of them end up playing prominent roles in the grand storyline of the Bible. And so there is grace and mercy. There isn't uh, the torture that these nations were carrying out against each other um uh, and so in those senses maybe we do see some evidence of God's grace even toward the Canaanites but another way in which God shows grace to the Canaanites is the timing of this whole thing there's a sense in which all of us deserve complete annihilation for our sin our rebellion against God right yet what does God say back in, even back in Genesis 15 when he makes the promise to Abraham, hey, your descendants are going to come to this land and live here and dwell and possess it? He says, but before that, your descendants are going to be taken into slavery in a foreign land. They're going to be brought back. And then the fourth generation, he says in Genesis 15, the fourth generation, they're going to take possession of this land. And he says, because the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. That's the reason for the delay in God's mind least one reason for the delay that the sin of the amorites is not yet complete in other words as sinful as these people already were and they did some heinous atrocious things even from today's standards in Gen- at the time of genesis 15 god says it hasn't gotten bad enough yet to justify the conquest that i'm going to command it wouldn't be right for you to do that right now in four generations they will have gotten so bad so oppressive to one another so completely in rebellion against me that it will be bad enough that this will be justified And so God orchestrates events so that they do wait until this is a just, just punishment on the people of the land uh, that they've gone so far. They're so wicked, so thoroughly wicked in four generations that this is a just sentence. Uh, I'm going to share one more thought as we close on this, about this, this conquest and is it mercy? Is it grace? Is it, is it disgusting wrath? Um, and that's about God's holiness right? I think part of what makes this so hard for us to swallow and it feels so morally repulsive to us to read God's command to completely wipe out the people is that we're just still missing it with God's holiness okay? so think about it, even in our, in our world we recognize that the same act is morally different depending on who it's committed against here's what I mean Yesterday, there was a sugar ant in my kitchen, and I squashed it with my thumb. Showed no mercy. I could have taken it outside. Didn't, right? Yet, I've just confessed that on something that's going to be on a live stream, and I'm not worried about the authorities coming and taking me away, right, Uh, for my act of brutality, because it was an ant. If I would have done the same thing in my same kitchen to a human, I'd be in big trouble, and I should be right? The acts, though the same act, is morally different because of who it's perpetrated against. True? Everybody tracking with that so far? Now, the reason why most of us would say, well, that's not a good analogy because it's not the way it is here, that's not the difference here, is because we still think that the moral difference between the ant and the human is bigger than the difference, the moral difference between us and God when actually it's not at all, right? The The difference between God and us is so categorically, exponentially greater than the moral and worth and value difference between us and the sugar ant that every sin that we have ever committed is primarily a sin committed against the God who made us and loves us and is perfect, right? That's why when David sins in atrocious ways against other humans he he abuses his power to take sexual advantage of a woman gets her pregnant and then abuses his power again to have her husband killed to try to cover it up he prays this prayer of confession in psalm 51 and he says these words that are so shocking he says against you and you only have i sinned lord and done what's evil in your sight and you're like no no you sinned against a lot of people in this david he's not saying that he didn't he's saying that compared to the sin that he committed against them it's exponentially worse so much worse that it's it's almost though this is insignificant the sin against God right so the God is always the most offended party in any sin that you and I commit and so at this time the Canaanites had rebelled so strongly against God that though it doesn't seem that that is worthy of annihilation to us if we really understood who God was We'd recognize that it is a just punishment, that it was exactly what they deserve. Um, thanks for sending in those questions. Let me pray for us before we close in worship. Heavenly Father, our sins, our rebellion against you deserves the greatest punishment. This morning, as we reflect, on these verses from your word uh we're struck that the problems of our present day world are not primarily outside these doors but we have plenty of problems of our own in our own hearts and in your church and so we confess that lord and we thank you that we can come to you in confession this morning not uh trembling in fear uh uncertain of the outcome as we bring our confession to you but rather we can come to you with confidence broken yes but trusting and fully assured that you will forgive our sins and you will cleanse us from our unrighteousness do that and empower us this week to be a people who don't even dip our toes in the water of the way of living of canaan in jesus name